0: Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of MotoGP Last on the Breaks. Now, viewers will immediately notice quite a stark difference um, as it's not Francis Wilde joining me this week. Um, she's having a well-deserved rest after well, what's been a long season so far, of course, so she deserves a little bit of a break. But we have a decent replacement, let's say, uh, in the form oh, of you. a good friend and uh, colleague. <laughs> Jack Gorse. Jack, it's good to have you on, mate. We're obviously going to dive into uh, the Mizano test that's obviously just happened. Plenty to talk about. Um, so yeah, how are you doing, mate? Good to have you.
1: Yeah, very good. Thank you for having me on. And of course, uh, thanks to Fran for having a little week off so <laughs> I can jump in and help you out. But no, plenty to talk about, as you say, Mizano and also the test coming up. And that's why well, we've got one of uh, another guest for us and a little bit of a different one, but one that's going to be able to give us plenty of insight into the Mizano test. So over uh, to Elliot to uh, introduce, really.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Pleased to say we've got Tom Jojic joining us. We'll bring him into the call as we speak. Former crew chief for the likes of Bradley Smith, worked with KTM, Hiroshi Oyama, of course, Kenny Roberts Jr., so a man of wealth experience. He should be joining any minute now, so we'll get him in shortly. But yeah, basically, we're going to run through um, what happened at the Mizano test, Mark Marquez's comeback, of course, the biggest news uh, of them all, Yamaha's engine update, of course, as well, and a few of the bits and bobs, and then me and you'll run through what we saw uh, at the San Marino GP2, Jack. But it was a while well, we'll wait for Tom to join the call. It was a, a very intriguing test, wasn't it? A busy couple of days for you guys on social media and web and doing all the bits and bobs. It's always a, a long winded day, but a very interesting day, and it was, of course, very, very important for the teams to start testing uh, 2023 material as well, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, very important. Of course, Mizano test is like one of these ones where it's really the first glimpse we have at the next season. So like first day of 2023, if you want to call it that. Um, it was, as you say, a long day, but none longer than for our pit reporter, Simon Park <laughs> who was on site down in Misano. Saw a nice uh, photo of him, a little, uh, little rest on one of the benches out there halfway through the day. So Simon had a very long day, but very productive day. So he was down there spotting all the tech things for us. And of course, you've got to say, As you rightly pointed out, the big, big story of that Mazzano test was Mark coming back and making, well, his presence known that he's actually, you know, looking like he's in good shape. Uh, Of course, he struggled a little bit with his physical condition, but you would do after 100 days off a MotoGP bike, let alone just having a fourth surgery on your right arm. So certainly, Mark, good news all around for him being back to what we know he can at least be close to.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It was it was great to see him back, wasn't it? Still don't know where Tom is, by the way. So if you're watching on live and wondering where, I guess your guess is as good as mine. He was in the call just before we started, so he should be coming in any minute. I'm not sure if we're having technical difficulties or something like that. But yeah, we'll get Tom in as soon as possible. Uh, but yeah, great to have Mark back. Here he is. There we go. All sorts Tom, good to see you. How you doing?
2: Yeah, sorry about that. I thought I was in it because yeah. um, it looked like I was hovering <laughs> in the background. But yeah, so I just re- re-clicked the link. Sorry about that.
0: Nah, no, worries. no worries. All good. Worries. Good to have you on, Tom. Um, yeah, how are you doing? And how did you enjoy analyzing the test over the weekend? Sorry, during the weekend, obviously the San Marino Grand Prix
2: over the weekend as well. Yeah, good stuff. It, it's always good to look at it from the outside. No stress, no pressure. <laughs> I can number crunch some stuff and just. Uh, Give my own opinions to my cat you know that type of thing <laughs> and see where we, where we are but yeah it's uh, it was really interesting i mean the overall lap time on on the especially wednesday morning when the conditions are at their best were was quite impressive i mean a lot of guys broke lap records there so that that's always good and um it's nice to see some progress on all sides you know everybody's working super hard championships always tough and like you said jack um You know, the test on Misano was always, this is your first shot at making next year's bike right. And there would have been a lot of prep in the background by all these factories. This wouldn't have been like something, okay, we need to, let's try and get something from Misano. It would have been more like, we've got so many things we want to try in Misano. What's our rider's main problem and what do we need to work on the most to make it happen?
1: Yeah, correct. I mean, well, if you talk about that, of course, probably this us talk to you about the first big thing that is on everyone's mind at the moment with Mark and the situation at Honda. You say there about like, you know, what's our biggest problem? Well, Honda at the minute, they have quite a few problems. There's no denying that. But having Mark back there, how valuable do you think that was, Tom, just to have Mark there on the, the day one of the next season to have him there straight from the off?
2: Well, even just mentally for the team and the engineers and HRC staff on both sides of the pond, huge, because Mark is Mark. I mean, really, Mark is the best rider in the championship when he's not injured. There's no doubt about that. He's um, he's on a level that everybody's trying to get to, and a lot of guys are there now, so it's nice that he was able to ride. I'm glad that he did um, the rest at the end of day one, because I think that would have been perfect for him. Like in the morning of day one do some laps get kind of up to speed and then day two he did um you know 31.6 which is not slow his um fastest lap time if looking back at the notes from 2021 qualifying he did a 31.9 so he went 0.3 faster than his qualifying time from two years ago um that's good and there's a guy that we know like he said he's not 100 percent there he he he's only gonna get faster when he's completely fit. So that that would have been huge for Honda. And the thing is he ended up fastest Honda, which is quite demoralizing for the other riders. But it, Mark's always gonna be the fastest Honda, I think. If he's if he's not at the racetrack, then he it's because he knows he can't do his job properly. So the fact that he's at the racetrack gives people a lot of hope. Whether he races Aragon or not is debatable. I would say no personally. If I was in his garage, I would say we need you right. Like we needed the feedback and we need you right to start next season because you're not going to win this. You're not going to win the championship this year. So why risk it? There's other other issues involved in that, obviously, politics and all the rest of it. But from a rider point of view, an engineering point of view, it's the best feedback you can get. And he was fast enough to give good feedback. So, yeah, super important for them.
0: The biggest indicator for me was he obviously did a couple of runs on his let's say the 2022 standard bike the one he finished uh, in Magello on before he obviously went for his surgery and then pretty much straight away he was like right okay let's uh let's do some testing switch to the other bikes that honda had in their garage and one of the biggest things we saw um and one of the big stories just before the test was honda using a calyx built swing arm um which just goes to show maybe the hole that Honda found themselves in, because as we know, Honda have done everything in-house for God knows how many years. So to see them using a Calyx built swing arm just goes to show how seriously are they obviously taking this and how much, yeah, they know they're sort of in trouble.
2: Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, he made quite a statement in Austria. I, I watched the interview about something needs to change, and he didn't say people. It's the mindset and the yeah. philosophy. HRC was a separate company inside Honda to be more European. So the bottom line is there was people in that garage I saw in the test on the video footage that came from Japan specifically for the test. That Calix swing arm wouldn't have been an overnight decision. It would have been done quite a long time ago because first of all they need geometry to know how to build it they need to know what fits that it needs to go on the bike without issues so that would have been a collaboration between honda and calyx we probably will never know the full details of that but but also what honda get out of that is a it's a reference of some description. Okay, a Moto2 swing arm is a Dunlop swing arm, really, if we talk about the tires and what the rider is trying to achieve is use Michelin tires on a GP bike. Mm-hmm. So there will be some things that maybe the Calx swing arm won't be, let's say, customized for for Michelins and also the amount of horsepower they're putting down, various things like that. But it is a good reference because they're dominating Moto2 um, and they've kind of... You know closed the door on a lot of the manufacturers on moto Two so for Honda there's there will be a lot of let's say twisting and measuring of that thing back in Japan, maybe between these races and the next time that thing runs and also they, they've got loads of aluminium swing arms in their back pocket, maybe there's something that they just want another they just want something different to happen, and also they need to keep mark happy because if they lose mark they're probably in even deeper trouble than they're in at the moment
1: yeah i mean it's certainly a possibility of course mark as we all know is their star man but you say about the kind of mark has said about this change of mentality and approach and the way of working i think it kind of already shows that that's happened because obviously it's a big change for honda to outsource such a large and critical component but also then my other thing that is they've really heavily got involved in the aero game now We saw them with two different designs on the side fairings, more like the kind of the supposed ground effect one that Aprilia have, and then also these downwash ducts that Ducati have. Traditionally, Honda haven't really got too heavily involved with the aero stuff, but this seems to be like a kind of change of, okay, you know, this is the game, whether we like it or not, we need to get involved in it.
2: Yeah, and the aero game is something that Honda probably don't believe in that much. And I think a lot of that stems back to the design of that motorcycle. If we roll way back in time to when I was MotoGPing 06, the Honda 06, the RC211V, the 990, was a much longer bike than this current bike. And everything was designed around Danny when he showed up, even though Danny rode the big bike, the 990. You know, they, they shrank the package. And some of the reason why they probably don't believe in the aero so much is if you look at the tires they always use, Constantly, medium or hard, they rarely use a soft front, which means that they're already loading the front much more than they need to load the front in some aspects. If I was a development engineer at Honda, my first thing would be why why aren't we able to use a soft front like the Ducati guys can? And I think part of that reason is Ducati developed Aero specifically because they couldn't use harder fronts in the past. So there's some history going back to why Aero showed up. And sometimes you put stuff on a bike because other manufacturers are doing it to keep your riders happy, but the reality is it's not what you need. It's not what your rider (laughs) needs. There's lots of ways to skin that cat, electronically, mechanical grip, various other things. And if you look at the lap times and the top speeds what's quite interesting is i analyzed a bit of that yesterday and this morning before this podcast i thought well it's better i kind of sound like i know what i'm talking about (laughs) when you look back at Honda top speeds mark's top speeds from 2021 on average were higher than everybody else's honda since then which means back then he had less aero but he still had some aero and that top speed is still acceptable in the Like it would have been enough to, to win. he won the, don't forget he won the race back in, when did he last, win? he won this race in 2019. Yeah. And the lap time since 19 has progressively gone much, much faster. But if you look at it, it's an average lap timing reduction, which is usually down to a, a racetrack being resurfaced, which it hasn't been since 15, but it's also down to the tire development. So. Those guys make the biggest difference and everybody's got the same tires. So what you have to do is use the tires that are available to you. And if you can never stick a soft front on and you're complaining about rear grip, my first thing as a development engineer would be to say, okay, I can only use the hard front in the races and I don't have enough rear grip. So putting aero on the front of the bike is probably not going to help that problem.
1: I mean, it's interesting you bring about the tyres as well, because it's this whole thing of now that there is the one tyre rule, which has been around for a long time now, but it's still you have to build the bike around the tyres. Where I suppose back when you worked for the Roberts team, it was a bit more like you could talk to your tyre manufacturer and they would build the tyre around the bike. Um, So it's that kind of switch. And perhaps we're still seeing Honda, not necessarily stuck in the ways, but just slowly transitioning from that
2: that's exactly right. And back in those days, we had a tire war with the, we had Dunlops and Michelins and Bridgestones and I've worked with all three. And the thing is those guys, especially when Bridgestone showed up, they, they came to Kenny's team. We had Nabo Ayoki and Jeremy McWilliams, and they basically made us a tire because there was only us and Tamata riding Bridgestones. And that thing was phenomenal. And I think that was, I think that was part of the reason why Casey won the championship quite easily in 2007, because when Ducati swapped from Michelin to Bridgestone, I thought that's a good move. Like if I was Ducati, I would be doing the exact same thing because you want that tire to give you an advantage at some places where a Michelin tire is not going to work on your bike and you don't want to change your bike every five minutes. So what, what I see there is you're a hundred percent right. When the t- single tire rule came in, it became harder to make well you couldn't convince the tire manufacturer to do something for you because they kind of have to keep it in the middle and the and it, it does make you, it gives you more time to solve your problem but you need to not get lost and maybe go in the wrong direction which kind of looks like what honda's done a little bit that's that's the main issue there
0: talking of tires they tested a new michelin front i think it was in between the medium and the hard compound and from the interview that we had on mergebit.com all the riders said it was it was a very positive um, update. For me, tires is a very interesting and strange subject. So, I don't it's hard for me to get my head around. You two are very more tech minded than me, um, so I'm going to sound a bit stupid here. Um, but yeah. tires are a very interesting subject to think about because they can make or break a race. Um, I just want to get your thoughts, Tom, on how important tires are in MotoGP like the different compounds compared to the different bikes some bikes can use the hard some bikes don't like using the hards that sort of thing
2: yeah it is the it's the holy grail the tire I mean you have to treat that thing like a baby when it's delivered to your back of the garage the guys (laughs) deliver the tires on a rack and it's like you don't mess with the tire guy the tire for me in my team, whenever I had a good tire person, it was always like, okay, this is how we need to treat these tires, okay. and the rider needs to do something with them to switch them on. Casey was a master at that, and you need to be, you need to understand how to use your tire properly. And I used to get so frustrated when an in lap, when a rider would slow down by 10 seconds, because you didn't get any good information from the tire because it cooled down too much. So there's um, there's a fundamental of is our motorcycle development going in the right direction? The way to know that is: can we use the soft, the medium, and the hard in, at any moment in time? If you, the answer to that is no, you're doing something wrong. So, and, and and thing is, Michelin's been here for quite a few years now since Bridgestone left, and the, the Michelin wouldn't—they won't be changing the tire radically because there's no benefit to doing that for them. They're, they're in a cost reduction stage with single tire. But also, if you look at the lap time, they're not, it's not like they're not working. They're definitely yep. making a step because the biggest steps of everything I've ever seen in all three classes came from tires, always. We, mm-hmm. could, we could make huge changes to the bike and a tire engineer would show up and say, try this tire and you're going a second lap quicker and the ballpark <laughs> changes we're in a different game and then and that's the un, that's the ultimate development enge, engineer's tool is where am i in the tire spectrum so on cold racetracks i can't do this at hot racetracks i can't use those at these racetracks i can only use the hard that's that's the ultimate way of understanding where am i in, in development
1: Well, there's a few that think that possibly this new Michelin front has been developed with a little bit more support, but similar grip to the medium could help Yamaha. Uh, And just heading away from tyres in general, but to speak more on Yamaha in general, of course, we saw recently Yamaha uh, at the test. Fabio was very happy and very positive about the fact they found a bit more acceleration and more top-end power and speed. Uh, And also with a new chassis, they made some advancements, but he wasn't 100% sure if it was better than the old one just yet. Although it was interesting because Fabio said um, that he liked the chassis and is considering it for Aragon and said it had more positives than negatives. But Morbidelli didn't agree so much. Now, of course, we've seen in the past that Honda went down a road where possibly they tailored the bike more towards Mark than anyone else. And you can't blame them for that. Mark was winning for them. But do you think we could see a similar situation in Yamaha? Or do you think the Yamaha's ethos of always having a, a smooth and easy bike to ride will stop them from heading so far down that way.
2: I think the second is correct. Like Yamaha's ethos is this is how a Yamaha works. And when Valentino arrived from Honda, you know, I remember distinctively hearing the quote of Yamaha saying to Valentino, our bike is like this, please, can you ride the bike like this? And he was able to do it and he he won on that thing with ease, right? And I think Yamaha have this fundamental way of working That allows riders to ride that bike to the maximum, a little bit easier than others. Like if you go back five years, I would have always said to any rookie going from Moto2 to MotoGP, get get on a Yamaha. It was that. It was always like that. If you're riding a Yamaha, you're going to have a beautifully balanced motorcycle, and it's going to do everything right. And a couple things are going to always be lacking, but that's every motorcycle's got that issue. So. Fabio's comments were interesting. I, I listened to his interviews and I liked I liked one of the things he said. Specifically, he said that what, what we've tried here, we should be able to use in Aragon. Now, you can't use a new engine in Aragon. That's clear because of the rules. So what that means, in my mind, is somebody's dialing in potentially electronics to limit wheelie, stop spinning and gain acceleration. And then you put a new engine in that, that maybe has less friction and more ultimate top end or whatever they've done, you'll never know, but it will be something will gain something. But basically there's loads you can do with electronics, maybe a little bit less aero, to sl- to, so it doesn't slow down as much. But if you can give him more grip at the rear then and less spinning with the same engine and less electronic control, you ultimately gain all the way down that straight, which ends up looking like more top speed. So I think Fabio looks like he's okay i don't think he's going to he's going to enjoy aragon much because of the long straight <laughs> no, but it's going to be different. <laughs> everybody's going to have that problem with Paddy at that racetrack but what he is going to d- be able to do is maybe use his package better between corners where right now maybe he's struggling a little bit spinning too much not driving forward and when we went to these when when we came from 800s back to thousands the bikes wheelied way too much and one of the first things the yamaha guys did I remember I was in tech three in the Moto2 project was they put a link in the chain. So they lengthened the swing arm by a huge amount. Yeah. And when you put a link in the chain, you stop wheelie, but you don't have any grip and you, you know, ultimately you have to solve that problem at some stage. That was the easiest way to solve that problem at the time. So them having a new chassis as well, and potentially him saying, I want to try that chassis in Aragon, That's a very good thing because you need to quantify a development item at more than one racetrack. You you can't just come to one racetrack and go, okay, yeah, this is fantastic. Because Tuesday and Wednesday, Misano racetrack, there was no rain on Sunday night. There was no rain on Monday. And the grip level would have been phenomenal on Wednesday morning because they just put so much rubber down. And so that's why those lap times looked so impressive on Wednesday morning as well. So you... All of a sudden you're now at a racetrack that you've ridden for five days for and you have the ultimate grip with kind of, it looked like very low wind also, which is perfect. And then you think, okay, we're, we're looking good. Yeah, I guess you have to look at relative to the other riders, but, but there's things there that he will be looking super strong for the championship once they go on the flyaways.
0: It's an interesting subject, isn't it? Obviously a lot of the riders, it was interesting actually at the start of the year when, Um, The likes of Paul was bigging up Honda, saying they're sort of back and they're very competitive. And Mark was like, just steady on because the tests, the conditions in the tests are so much different to what they are over a race weekend. You mentioned the grip, obviously, is the biggest thing. Um, But hopefully the chassis is going to help Fabio for the rest of the championship because at the minute it looks like, I mean, especially Aragon, he's never gone well at Aragon um, and Yamaha don't tend to go well well there either. Um, he needs all the help he can get, so obviously they can't use the engine this year because of the rules, so what difference can they make in the garage without the engine to try and improve performance? As a crew chief, what would you be trying to do to help gain a little bit of top speed and acceleration?
2: Yeah, for me, the first thing I would do, and I would have spent most of Tuesday test as a crew chief solidifying the setting options that we were uncertain of over the weekend. Also because you had the mixed rain conditions in qualifying, so you couldn't really do anything there. But basically you can always find grip with chassis setting and electronic setting. It's a compromise of all kinds, right? So if you focus on drivability and these motorcycles are so complicated now. They're they're not PlayStation level, but very close, right? So you can set a slip target at a certain bank angle at a certain corner. So coming onto that long back straight, I would have dialed in perfection for him. Where like you would have given him three things on a map or four things on a map and say, go out there and just try these different settings. They would have done that during the weekend. But the problem is during the weekend, your time is is limited you can't always do that so you can make a maybe a bigger change a fundamental way in how the torque control happens and it even if you find one kilometer an hour coming out of a corner that translates into something so big by the time you've tipped into the fast rights that your bike can all of a sudden look like it's going three kilometers an hour faster down the straight and that could be just and even that little thing mentally for fabio could be wow, we found something here, right? So how do we use that at the next racetrack? And that's where being a crew chief in the setting side, it's super important to say, hey, Fabio, this is something that we could use in Aragon. Like, okay, that that chicane getting onto that Aragon straight is a little bit tougher because it's really slow. But, you know, Yamahas have gone well there in the past, but, okay, it's not so easy nowadays. You just have to use your positives to your advantage and defend in your negatives that was always the discussion i had with my riders and and if they can find something if the chassis helps that hopefully it's a chassis that allows him to open the throttle sooner that creates a turning effect which allows him to use less slip control which allows the tire to grip more which gives him more top speed and even if it's just five kilometers an hour so when the ducati's behind him it doesn't blast past him, it it has to struggle to get by him. That could be a big advantage.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was one thing that we couldn't get out of Fabio. Of course, all the riders are very tight-lipped on what the pros and cons are all the new pieces they try, um, as ever, which is slightly frustrating, but it's good fun to try and figure it out anyway. Uh, but we know that also you say about kind of working on electronics and chassis setup and all this to try and find grip and performance. We know that KTM are doing a lot of that. Uh, Over the two-day test, and of course, KTM is an interesting one because you worked for KTM a long time yourself, both in Moto Three development team, I believe, and then also as a crew chief in MotoGP. Um, But interestingly, it seemed to be like well, this whole year in general, but also the Misano test. It was kind of the first test where we turned up and KTM had turned up, but they haven't just kind of lobbed a load of parts at it and kind of tried loads and loads of different things. We think there was a twenty twenty three engine, and that's about it, really. so you know from your experience in k t m what do you see that as? Do you see it as kind of k t m just trying to slow down perhaps what they would do before and really assess various different avenues and what they can do right now before then going on to develop bigger things
2: yeah, that's a good question and And I did spend a lot of time in k t m it was a good um, It was a good run for me. I enjoyed the company I really liked the people there I still like. I mean, I still get on well with the guys. I haven't spoken to many of them recently, but what the problem they've got at the moment is Miguel's leaving. So your fact, one of your factory development riders out of after a race Grand Prix, you can't give him big things to check because he's not going to he's going to be racing against you next year. Unfortunate for them. Then you've got Brad Binder, who's a fantastic rider and had some amazing results with victories, and he had a decent weekend. So there's your basic reference. I think Brad's got a new crew chief this year compared to last year. So maybe there's a little bit of learning going on from stepping up to be Brad's crew chief. And then you're trying to understand the system inside KTM. And that's something that you know w- would have been managed in, in a good way at this stage. But also, you're right, if they didn't have a brand new bike, that means there's a very good chance that they could have some a big change coming. And maybe it wasn't possible to get it to Misano now having a new engine to test would be a positive because once you get those victories and those podiums they're restricted now to engine development they they don't have the concession anymore so that makes it a little bit harder for them but but in the end they would have had some good ideas for sure they would have tested a lot of develop because danny pedroso was riding and he went quite quick actually so he's doing a lot of development so that that side is is always positive and they had a a really strong test team. That that was what I, I liked about the project. And Mika was doing some great testing and racing back when I was in, in KTM. So that, that side is is always... it's Your race team really is dependent on a really good test team and your test rider needs to be as close to your Grand Prix rider as possible in lap time and in understanding how to ride the motorcycle. So they have everything in place. Sometimes what happens is maybe you have too much budget and too many options. And so there can be some confusion if one side of the garage is going quickly and maybe requesting something different to the other, like you stated earlier with, with Frankie and Fabio. And maybe some of that was happening um, between Paul and Brad and now with uh, Miguel and Brad, it's it's possible. And if, if you have a little bit of that going on, then it can stall your development a little bit. And, and also, it, that can lead you down the path of, okay, we think we need to go this way, but maybe that didn't work and they have to do some backtracking. And also don't forget they do have a new team manager, right? So his style yeah. of working could be quite different, um, to, to, um, the chap that left. And then, and then you end up, you end up um, having to retrace some steps and, and potentially you, you might have somebody like Brad saying, well, actually, back when I won this race in Austria last year, I think our bike was better. If if that type of conversation is happening, and that's just me guessing, I don't know, because I haven't spoken to any of those guys, then that that can slow things down a little bit. And then you have to rethink and reevaluate, right? What's our next step that we need to do?
0: One thing that interests me about KTM is, and in, in the sport in general sometimes a manufacturer can have a, a really good race bike like KTM do at the minute. They're not too far off if far off at all in terms of race pace, but it's the Saturday afternoons in qualifying where they're really struggling and some riders can obviously get the maximum out of, the soft tyre Suzuki as well of course Suzuki have never qualified well especially with the Juan Mir and Alex Rins who are two of the fastest guys on the grid on a Sunday but just can't seem to get the bike working uh, on a Saturday why why is that I'm not technically minded as I've said at all so it's just interesting to see as a crew chief um, why certain bikes or certain riders maybe um, can't get the maximum out of qualifying but then on a Sunday the bike seems to work in a in a race condition.
2: Yeah, that's a good question. That used to annoy me also as a coach. <laughs> Sometimes you'd say, come on, man, what's going on? Um, one thing you've got to realize is in qualifying, you're putting in the soft tires, you're running with the minimum amount of fuel, and the rider has to be able to switch from, I've like you've spent free practice one, free practice two, free practice three, mostly on race pace, like, of course, you want to try to throw a soft tire in at the end of each session to make sure you make Q2 now. And then you've probably only got one crack at that in each practice, because you need to save those soft tires for qualifying, because you have a limited number of soft tires. So you don't get to practice that outright soft tire bonsai lap, you know, and we got to remember that these guys, if you look at the, the split in the lap times from the 1st to 15th, it's tightened so much in the last few years that the the point of falling off becomes more of a knife edge. So they're riding that knife edge to the limit. And that's when, when you see guys do fall off. It's you're know, Sometimes you're a bit like shocked. Wow, what happened there? But the reality is you don't get to practice that outright one lap very often. So if KTM are struggling with certain aspects of the package on a light fuel load or anybody else, Suzuki as well, then those... Problems are compounded with soft tires because all of a sudden, let's say you've got a grip problem, and all of a sudden somebody's giving you this super soft tire, and you're like, "Oh, the problems are gone," and then you think, "Yeah, that's fantastic." And then somebody's going, "Well, why don't we just race that soft tire?" Which is, I I had that scenario back in 2009. Um, I was doing a German championship with KTM in Superbike. We won that championship, but what happened was we had a soft tire that we could race that nobody else could race in the championship. It was a qualifier by Dunlop, but we we were able to race it. So you kind of come up against this brick wall of I have this amazing amount of grip all of a sudden and the rider's not used to using it. Sometimes they get the best out of it, but not always. And then you go to race on probably harder tires or mediums or something with a full fuel load, which really can change how a motorcycle works at this level. And then you have to deal with, your problems of the full fuel. That's why a lot of times you see a guy like Brad Binder come better at, at the end of a race. So now all of a sudden he's got the race tires, which are harder than the qualifiers, let's call them, but he's got less fuel near the end of the race. And all of a sudden he's got this good feeling. Oh, I have this feeling. I had in qualifying. I don't get to ride like, the, like my maximum as much as I like. And then all of a sudden he's got the bit between his teeth and he's a all around well-rounded rider uses all the controls front and rear brake. I mean, that rear brake is a completely different subject. We could do a whole podcast on that. But then you can use this tool to your advantage, and then all of a sudden he's coming through the field and he's having fantastic races. And a, a good example of that also is Austria last year. When it starts to rain, so this is the other extreme, all of a sudden you have slicks and no grip, but you have this skill that you can use, and you have a package that can't use the ultimate grip, but it can use low grip. So now you've got this situation where a kid stays on his bike and he wins a Grand Prix. And that's as a development engineer or a race engineer, you think to yourself, okay, we're really good at low grip conditions. How do we get better at high grip conditions? This is our main problem. We need to solve that. And And then your rider will be able to use that to his advantage. He can use the package in any grip condition. So you're back to the tire situation. What tires can I use the best? what tires can't I use and what end of the package is limiting me The soft on the front, the soft on the rear. Like you, you have to work that out. It's a puzzle. That's why I loved it so much because it's like a complex engineering puzzle, but there's all this other factors going on where you get guys like Brad Binder and Mark Marcus lifting the thing up off the corner with their elbow. You know, it's just ridiculous what they're able to do when they're given the package to do it
1: you know, you say about kind of solving a puzzle and all these, you know, complex things you got to figure out. I mean, just for a reference, and so we actually know how much hard work has to go into figuring these out. How many times would you say you fail going down a route to try and solve a puzzle before then you hit it and it sticks and it works?
2: (laughs) Yeah, we used to call that finding a direction. And I can't take that quote. I have to give that quote to Graham Irvine at Olins because... Graeme said that to me one day. We don't ever say we've gone the wrong way. We say we've, we're finding, we found the direction and sometimes backwards is just as good as forwards. Cause really ultimately yeah. you have to be in that garage without an ego and you have to have, okay, I thought about that. I thought we should go down that direction and it was better, but sometimes you go the wrong way. But the reality is in a, in a Grand Prix weekend, if you think, if you add up the exits, it's easy. You, what you've got is you've, The good quote is a blind man can hit the side of a barn with a shotgun but a race (laughs) engineer is is like a sniper you have so many bullets in your gun what you have to do is you have to line up the target every exit you have to think to yourself free practice one exit one last weekend's race bike as close as possible in setting go out with with the tires usually soft soft and run the bike in and get the rider up to speed and then you add up usually five four exits five exits a grand prix times three sessions. So you got 15 attempts at it. And then you've got qualifying, which you usually don't want to change anything for qualifying. The rider needs to know what he's got underneath him so he can pull the trigger for himself. And you got warm-up and you really pray for good weather and warm-up so you can make one more crack at it. And when you go to the race, he has to go to the the race with something that he's ridden that weekend. I I wouldn't say I did that every weekend because sometimes you have so much pressure on you, be it from a rider or – A team boss or something that we have to try something for the race but in a Grand Prix weekend you probably have 10 good opportunities to learn something and then over the years those opportunities happen at every Grand Prix and every test but for example in 2006 with Kenny Junior KR211V with the Honda B5 engine when we finished sixth in the championship we made seven chassis and four swing arms and by Barcelona, we were on the podium. So some of those chassis were modified chassis. Some of those chassis were brand new chassis, but the development side was always happening. And those Monday tests were so crucial because we learned from our reference of the race weekend. They were the most, they were the best weekends I ever had was when we had a Monday test. I can remember distinctively, Mategi Monday test, we found a setting, went to Estoril and Kenny lost a race on the last lap. But that was like a setting thing that we did. And, and um, it turned into a, one of the best weekends I've ever had. And unfortunately he thought it was a lap earlier and um, Tony won the race and Valentino finished second. We finished third, but it, it's um, 287 days out of the country. One year I spent racing and testing. That was a big That's season. A lot. Yeah. was <laughs> a lot. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot. Yeah.
0: I no, think I'm these guys it might
2: it be goes. doing more more now with 21 races right so but they but they're doing less testing yeah back 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 this year
1: at the end of the year it's just one day test rather than i think usually there's four days at the end of the season so
2: yeah like when the testing restrictions came in that was a good thing in some ways because it gave you some family life but but from a (laughs) development point of view it was a bad thing because you know you didn't get to go to the race path enough to fix problems so
0: We've had a question from Twitch. You mentioned the rear brake and we could do a whole podcast. We're not going to do a whole podcast (laughs) on it, but they say it's um, a really fascinating subject, and it is, to be fair, um, because obviously we always see the riders hard on the anchors on the front brake and don't, to the naked eye anyway, you don't really see the riders using the rear brake. Um, Just talk to us how important the rear brake is and how much a rider may use it over a lap. Or different riders okay. use it at different times.
2: Yeah, it's a it's a great question, and it's a an amazing tool that Moto 3 and Moto 2 riders really need to understand what it does. And some of them are good at it, and some of them never touched it. Um, I was extremely lucky in my career to work with a lot of riders that understand understood all the controls on their package. MotoGP, there's a there's a huge advantage you have, and you can dial in engine braking. So you can make the engine do the job for you, but I still think a rider using rear brake is at an advantage to a rider that doesn't understand how to use it. So one of the things I saw, which was incredible, we have this, we have this device now on these motorcycles that lowers the rear ride height when the rider pulls the lever, yeah. But I remember watching a rider dip the rear brake at the, end of the, at the end of the straight when he was still full throttle. And then it sat the rear down and he grabbed front brake then he also reapplied the rear brake when it sat back down, and then what he did was, as he entered to the apex, he basically fed the front brake off the rear brake until there was no more front brake. There was a tiny bit of rear brake, and the throttle was cracked. And as he opened the throttle, he slightly redu- reduced the rear brake until it was off, and the bike finished the corner off. And he did this on every corner. It was phenomenal. I remember asking him. He was a world champion, 250 world champion, an amazing rider. I was super lucky to work with him. Olivier Jacques, if you're out there, amazing. He said he didn't realize he was doing it. He just did it because he realized he needed the bike to sit down at the rear before he applied maximum front brake pressure. And that was such an advantage in the two-stroke days. That's why he was able to win a world championship. And I saw that also in in some all, all the riders i worked with used rear brake all the ones i was most successful with some there was a couple of riders i tried to educate how to do it and sometimes you would show old data and say look this is what this rider used to do if you need to learn how to do that it's a it's a phenomenal tool so sometimes what you'll see is a rider who's super good at it will win a championship because he passes everybody in right-hand corners a lot of riders can use the rear brake in left-hand corners because you lean left, you use your right foot. But it's really hard to use the rear brake in right-hand corners because you want to push on the outside of the foot peg. Simon could probably describe this perfectly. It would be interesting to hear Simon Crafar's comments on this. And basically what a really good rider will do is they'll use the rear brake as a pivot point. So they'll use it as the foot peg almost. And then they peel into that corner and they can carry more speed because if you carry too much speed you'll tuck the front. But if you press on the rear brake, you'll create rear grip. So you'll sink the rear into the ground and the bike will turn around that corner. So it'll take load off the front even though it's creating rear grip. A qualifying tire does the opposite. It creates rear grip and it pushes the front. So it's kind of a conundrum that a rider needs to figure out in his own mind. How how does that work? And it's, it's due to the linkage geometry and how the pivot's working, how your pivot is set up, this type of thing. It's really an amazing tool that I loved Moto3 because Moto3 was pure engineering and rider skill and there's no horsepower so the draft and they have to ride it's an amazing championship
1: yeah of course very tiny little bikes motor 3 bikes So they 65 horsepower something like that but um, a question generally yeah, about, 60, a, yeah? okay I So saw, I saw yeah. there's a little bit of insight we know that uh, a good motor in Moto3 is about 65 <laughs> but a little bit of insight actually about Olivier Jack. It was traditionally quite good in the wet. Do you reckon his rear brake technique was something that helped in
2: there? 100%. All of the riders that I was with that were really good in the wet used the rear brake on every corner. And there's a way, I mean, you can overuse it. You don't want to do that. But you definitely, there's a finesse to be taught there That that is, um, yeah, it helps you in in those conditions where you need something to make the motorcycle go around the corner. It makes the motorcycle turn. And there was, I'll, I'll never forget it. There was a footage in Sepang of Mark Marquez in his first year or second year No, i think it was 2015 i think i remember watching it i was at the racetrack that day and there was this it was during qualifying or free practice three or something and it's turned nine or turn 10 in sepang so after the really tight left hairpin kind of corner there's that really fast right and they had an amazing Dorna had this amazing camera on the inside of the racetrack and he was they had this close-up of his foot and I was like, what are, they, what are they filming here? We were in Moto3 and I was watching this in the background and he was trail braking with his foot on the foot peg, but pressing on the rear brake. He, like, he almost wasn't using the foot peg. And I, I was like, that guy's phenomenal. Look at that technique. And it's like the dodgiest of corners. It's off-camber, slippery. And that's the place. That's the corner where he crashed in Moto Two, and um, yeah, it is, where yeah. we had that rain shower, where he had the eyesight issue. After that, but yeah, like for to watch that close up, I was like, oh, I love this high definition slow speed stuff. It's just like what you can learn from watching that. And if I was a rider in the World Championship, I'd just be watching footage of the races every weekend when I got home. I mean, I used to do that as an engineer because you learned so much by watching that stuff.
0: That is an interesting point, actually, because obviously the riders like to watch races and watch practice sessions back. I'm not sure quite the reason for that, but you just said there you'd watch it back and you'd learn a lot of things. So how how much can you learn from watching a race back, not just obviously to watch it back, see if a rider made a mistake here or where he could have been a little bit better um, or to just enjoy it, of course. Um, what can you learn watching a race back?
2: Well, a lot really, because ultimately what you should do as an engineer is some type of analysis of what happened. So what I would do is I'd get the donor results, the spreadsheet converted from PDF to Excel, create a create a database of some kind for myself and put everybody's lap times, split times, top speeds into the spreadsheet and analyze our package, especially at, in the KTM Moto three days. Th- this was a big part of the job role. So you, you understood that we were always good at acceleration and braking, but we struggled in change of direction, and turnability of the motorcycle. And you prove that with Dorna, Dorna lap time information based on what your riders did. And then you would go back and go, well, we always lose 0.2 in split two of Texas, let's say, or something. You know, Then you'd go back and watch Texas and go, which one of our guys looks good here? Like, visually on TV, okay, that looks good. What's going on? Then I'd go to the data, could I have everybody's data, and think, well, what can I learn from this? Is it setting? Is it his riding ability or is it just fundamentally that they were using that he wanted to tire properly? And then you'd go back and listen to the rider's comments or I'd check my notes because I always debriefed with almost every rider in Moto3 at that time. I wanted to know from them specifically how was their race, what was good, what was bad, how do we make it better? So there's a wealth of information you can learn from that. And if you spend that time at home, which for me would be a complete day, usually that was in the travel day, I would be doing that on the flight or whatever. I'd be trying to make this Excel spreadsheet, I have loads of graphs and it would become really clear that we need to work on this. Can we solve that with setting or do we need to do that with development? And then ultimately as a development engineer, I was lucky enough in Moto3 specifically that i got to work with the top riders on the test team so i was crew chiefing the bike on the test team the team could come and see what we were doing but then we had the option of going right we think this is development we need this guy to do this so let's put this in the bike and see if he can do it or if we weren't 100 percent sure on the setting maybe we had an idea we, we didn't get a chance to try at a race weekend I would change some clicks or put a shock in or damper or whatever, something, and we would try that and the rider would come back with a smiley face and you would just say, okay, we offer that to the team. We learned this lesson. You guys could try this at the next Grand Prix. Your rider really liked it from a setting point of view. They don't have to try it, but, you know, as KTM Factory, your your job was to try to help them as much as possible to win the championship. And then you you got your setting information, you made the team happy, and you got your development information from the top riders which is really what you need the most because if you've got mark marquez doing all the testing until next year then you've got a better package for next year that would be the way i would look at it and watching races is the best way to learn because you can see those guys going backwards there well what's going on you go back to your spreadsheet and go well we're struggling in these corners mark crashed in um at the beginning of the year, when he had those two crashes in qualifying, qualifying one, I think it was, I can't remember where that was now. Was that Thailand? Do you guys remember where that was?
0: Um, Indonesia, the no, big one, wasn't it? Indonesia.
2: Yeah. yeah. When I saw those two crashes, I thought, oh dear, for me, <laughs> as a development engineer, looking from the outside, my first thought was he doesn't have front confidence. He's riding the bike like he feels like he has front confidence, but all of a sudden he's crashed in qualifying. And then he crashed the second bike at, at the exact same corner, basically. And then I think I, I heard something about lack of rear grip, but the reality is that it was the front end affects the rear just as much as the rear end affects the front. So that's kind of like the game you're playing there.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely a tricky one too. Try and figure out, of course, you know, we've heard so much stuff about Honda this year, whether it's uh, a case of lack of rear grip or then, as you say, you know, front grip actually might be the issue and confidence there and the feeling. Um, And it's interesting as well, because in the two day test we just saw, uh, we did see Stefan Brado go out for a couple of exits on the 2021 bike. So it's a kind of case of, you know, maybe Honda just going back to see, you know, obviously Stefan would have experienced that bike in quite some time. Uh, just to hop, hop on it, see what the initial feelings are and go okay we can learn something from looking back and it's not them taking a step back it's just looking back to be able to formulate where they need to go for next year's bike.
2: Yeah that's true and it, that's you know that's a good thing in my opinion. It would be something that you go okay this is something we had last year what is the difference for you now? And because tires have changed, right, like Michelin w- would have made a development. If you look at the lap time change between 2021, 2022, it's quite significant. It's not as big of a change as from 2020 to 2021. There's a much bigger step at Misano between those two years. But there's um, there's a, a a smaller step between 21 and 22. So, yeah, there's always something to, um, to... You can't get lost by che- back checking is what we called it. You can just clarify right we need to think maybe we need to rethink this dimension and go back try something like this
0: yeah that's really interesting stuff tom to just finish on before we let you go it's been a fascinating chat so thank you very much but who do you reckon is going to win the title then? Because obviously we've had Spanyai win the last four races. gatty <laughs> look so strong, not to put you on the spot or anything. Um, Aleish, Aleish looking good. I think the last two races, Aleish has been not off it, let's say, but they are his worst two tracks in his own words um, of the season. We're coming to Aragon next, which is one of his favourites. Where do you see the title ending up this year?
2: Well, I hope it goes down to Valencia. I think that's okay. the best thing that can happen. It's it's nerve-wracking for riders and teams, but it's fantastic for us <laughs> viewers, right? And I don't know. I think it, my money's on my money's on Fabio re- reclaiming it. I don't know. I, I get a really good vibe from Fabio because I've worked with him. I've I worked with Peko also in Moto3 and Enya Bastien, like all these kids I, I was in Moto3 with. So what I really like about what, what Ducati are doing and what, Fe- and what Pecco's doing is, I mean, he's building on momentum. So there's, n- there's no reason why he can't take the championship, but it will be harder for him the closer he gets to it because it's an Italian rider on a red bike
1: <laughs> winning
2: a world championship for the first time for them. So that would be an amazing achievement that, that the great Valentino couldn't achieve but being one of his riders and having Valentino in the background, helping him, let's say, coaching, is a huge advantage. There's no doubt about that. But he's got to he's got to overcome that winning the championship, which he hasn't done yet. Whereas Fabio's backing up a championship. So I'd, I, I'm going to watch as much of it as I can, probably more than I should having a, a young son, <laughs> my wife looking at me, what are you doing on TV there? But I could at least, at least if I, was, I can get up early and nobody's bothering me early in the morning. So it'll, it'll be fantastic. But if if I was gonna go down to the bet shop and put a bet down, I right now I'd probably put it on Fabio. It'd be tough though. You might just go 50, 50 on that one. Just put a hundred quid on both and hope for the best, right? One of them's gonna win it. <laughs> I, don't wanna, I don't wanna say Aleish can't win it, but I think he could. Unfortunately, he's injured himself, which is never good um, but it probably will be okay but still like it's hard right when when people aren't really talking about you as much as the others and and Pecco is on a roll and Fabio looks like he found something so I hope for El that he he wins a couple of these races and brings himself right back into the top of the fight for it because that would be phenomenal and we didn't really get a chance to talk about it pretty much which is a shame. Because that company is doing some amazing things and they deserve a hat off because that bike in top speed, in turning, Simon Crafar hit the nail on the head, Maverick in the fast right was phenomenal. I was watching that and he was turning inside everybody behind him with the same top speed. And that looks incredible. He is a man on a mission that could win a Grand Prix this year. I hope he does. But let's hope he helps. Um, Aleish brings him because those two guys in the garage. When you've got a teammate that's that strong, it just. Aleish is the character. He's such a nice guy. Those Espigaros aren't they? They're so nice. That yeah. that he's such. A, he's one of these kids that like he's looking across, going, "That guy did what lap time? Okay." <laughs> and then off he goes, and he matches it. Like that is what you need as a teammate. And that yeah, I, th- yeah. I hope they have that atmosphere that we used to have at Kenny's where you have two guys in the garage where the whole team's helping each other, but the riders are just sorting it out on the racetrack. That yeah. is a great place to be and and fair play to them because there's a motorcycle that looks phenomenal, really does. Aprilia is the package at the moment, the all around package, I think. We didn't talk about it much, but, but they really are doing a fantastic job.
0: Well, we can touch upon it now. There's no no rush to set off. Aprilia is something we should have spoke about, to be fair. They didn't try too yeah. many things at the Test, did they? Um, but, I mean, what a season they're having. And i share your thoughts, Tom. I do hope Maverick wins the race this season. I think he will, not to try and jinx him or anything like that. Um, <laughs> but for him to come good now is perfect for a lace yeah. in terms of the title chase because Fabio with Franco Mouidelli doesn't have that um he's no. obviously struggling with the yamaha and peko has got about 20 other ducatis that he can uh, rely upon so it's important <laughs> for uh maverick uh sorry for a lace to have maverick doing so well um
2: but is yeah, starting to beat him as well so that's, that's not good either let me, let me give you a number so here's aprilia in in 2019 average speed so how we would quantify top speed is go to the race result Look at all the speeds and make an average of that, of all of them. Because if you're in slipstream and you're not, okay. I haven't exactly done that, but I've taken the average of the top five, okay. In 2019, 289.3 was his average. In 2020, 293.7. So plus four kilometers an hour. That's huge. That's nothing. 2021, 301.1. 7.4 kilometers an hour faster average top speed between 20. And 21. I think if Fabio had that, look out, right? So this year, 2022, it was a little bit less, but it's still 297, so minus four. So let's go back to 2020, 293 to 297, so plus four again. That's a good step. That puts him, so let's talk about Misano. 300 kilometers an hour is probably the maximum you're going to get at Misano because that's straight, you have to turn right. So, you know, you can only accelerate as fast as you can accelerate force equals mass times acceleration and that's what you've got you know you can only put down so much power if we now look let us let's, let's look at another one let, let's talk about um, let's talk about Yamaha yeah because this is interesting so in in 19 288.6 in 20 289.6 21 293.7 and 22 294.7 mm-hmm. so they've made a step there's no doubt about it. And then in the test, Fabio did a 298. He said he got a good slipstream. That doesn't matter. It's a slipstream. So, like, as long as you don't get dropped, that's the key. But what I like about Aprilia is those jumps are on their own. Like, that is, yeah. that is really amazing. And, like, remember, Aprilia dominated 125s and 250 two fives and two fifty two two-strokes. That thing, if you weren't riding Aprilia, you weren't winning the championship right and okay we had we had another brand that was basically an Aprilia with another name on it but <laughs> but also and okay Hiroshi won the last 250 world championship on honda yeah. <laughs> but the thing is they really understand grand prix racing and now here we are in moto gp two rider aprilia team fighting for a championship they grabbed maverick when they had the chance and haven't they turned him around i mean yeah, what that, a phenomenal incredible
1: yeah. job of it incredible
2: yeah and the good thing is when it, when i hear like what you said about aprilia haven't tested much that means they're in a good spot and that means what they have tested is going to mean something so if they've done a tiny little bit of aero here and there maybe they you know maybe they didn't throw a chassis or a swing arm at it or a new engine but the, looking at the top speeds it doesn't look like they need a new engine what they need is is an engine that can do the season without blowing up. I'm, I'm not saying they've blown up. I'm just saying they just need to build stability now. They've got two riders there that are able to win a championship. Next year they're going to have a satellite team, so they really need they need to focus on having all four bikes at the same level when they first start the season. I think that crew inside that team really are are gold. Like I love little teams like that where there's like. You know, you've got a development team in the background that's chunking bits of metal out or making carbon fiber bits, and you, and you've got these two guys at the racetrack that are using it to the maximum. And the fact that they've had a leash for so many years and built a stable package around the guy that is able to, to ride at the top level is a great place to be. Yeah, it's it's fantastic for them. Let's hope they can, let's hope they can be the real underdog and sneak this one. That would be kind of cool, wouldn't it?
1: It would be cool yeah i mean they've done an incredible job as you say like in the last few years taking the jumps that they've been able to and it's really been a case of just ever since they changed to the the new 2020 bike and put a 90 degree v4 in there and all this like there was huge revelations each time that we saw that bike at the test days but now as you say the changes are so small you don't spot them anymore and you know yeah we know that they did test the chassis the last couple of days but you look at the bike and it looks exactly the same And it's so hard to spot the differences. And any differences that are there, they're going to be internal anyway. So it's like the base that they have now is so, so good. It's just perfecting it rather than this new revolution every time.
2: And Maverick's comment, did you guys listen to his interview? Like He said he put race tires on, went out, and broke the lap record. Yeah. Okay. I I think being his crew chief, I would say, yeah, that's fantastic, mate. Let's take this to... Aragon and see what we can do with it. And you would never give the rider a negative at that point. To the to the development team in the background, I would say some of that is down to the fact that we have the ultimate grip level up here on the second day of the test. And it's, you know, but first of all, we've got the rider's confidence, and he's able to churn out these lap times. That's amazing. And here's a, we're talking about a world champion, right? Moto three world champion. He was short lived in Moto two because he jumped straight to Moto three after one year, but. But Maverick is a title contender for next year, I think. He, if he can keep his, his um, mental side in the right place and they can, they can do everything right, him and Aleish are going to be tough to beat. And the new guys riding at Aprilia, they're going to have to get up to speed. There's always things to learn. Like Look at Maverick's lap time. He, he went a second faster this year to last year. So Sano was his first time on the Aprilia last year. So now he's got a year under his belt. He's talking in the way that he can fight for the championship. And we didn't really hear that from Maverick enough in the Yamaha days, right? Even though he was able to be there, you know, he he was fast on a Yamaha when he showed up on a Yamaha. So I think, yeah, I I like Aprilia. And and the European manufacturers with Aprilia, Ducati and KTM are really showing the way at the moment, right? Like it's Honda struggling and. Yamaha always kind of seemed to be more like right there. You know, there's, there's this base of Yamaha that is so good. And as long as they've got some somebody on it like Fabio able to do the job, they can keep their, their positives of their package and then w- work forward. And maybe that's one of the things that Aprilia are doing really well is they understand what they want from their motorcycle. I think that's the key. Coming from the smaller classes, and they have made super bikes, so they do understand big bikes, they know if we stick around this design philosophy, similar to Yamaha, our riders, we just have to find the right guy to fit this bike. This is how you need to ride an Aprilia. It's a great way to work.
1: Well, it's always worked like that, hasn't it? Of course, you have you know, those bikes that were more, you got to kind of grab it by the horns and force it to fit. And Casey Stoner was one of those that always did that with the Ducati back in the day. Uh, And then there was always the way, like kind of the Jorge Lorenzo way, where it was, okay, this man and machine are just the same being. They just fit together perfectly. You know, there is no chalk and cheese relationship there. They're just all chalk or all cheese sort of thing. But um, It's pretty incredible the way that Aprilia managed to do that and do it so rapidly is the biggest thing. You know, a completely new bike, And you've got to think that Honda are going to be able to take inspiration from that, because in reality, Honda aren't incredibly far off, are they? MotoGP is in its most competitive time ever, and Honda realistically are less than a second off at every racetrack. So it's one breakthrough, maybe two, and a Honda will be able to do the same job that Aprilia are doing now.
2: Yeah, the biggest problem in racing is finding that last second that's for sure. (laughs) You know, getting to that second is, I'm not saying it's easy, but yeah, like for, for Mark and Honda, he needs the other Hondas around him also being fast. Cause like, you know, like everybody knows that Mark's probably going to be the fastest Honda, but you can't have the other guys, not even in the top 10. That makes it difficult. And mentally for him also, he's also a human being, right? So you, when you look at that, that's why he made those statements and I think, like, really, when you see a little factory like Aprilia with only two bikes on the grid, kind of like what Suzuki have always stuck to that yeah. philosophy of we put two on the grid, because they can support it better, I think. And prototype racing is about making parts and bringing it to the racetrack and being competitive. It's not production racing. So you should be able to focus your development for a smaller package and a smaller team. And, and that's a great Aprilia are showing the way, really. Do it, do it the Aprilia way, and you should be, you should be able to win races and hopefully win a championship in the big class.
0: Well, seeing Maverick speed is the thing that um, enticed Miguel Oliveira and Ralph Fernandez over to Aprilia, which is obviously a really exciting prospect because obviously Ralph Fernandez has ridden the KTM this year, which hasn't quite been at the level that uh, KTM would have anticipated. So it's been very tough for. Raul and Remy especially, um, and obviously Miguel as well. But Miguel is obviously more experienced in the class. He's won races in Merge EP. I think we've got a lot of changes next year, which are really exciting. But I think for Miguel and Raul to see Maverick challenging for race wins, three podiums in the last four, if it wasn't for his rear ride height device um, jamming in Germany, it probably would have been another podium there as well. Um, yeah. so yeah really exciting times for Aprilia I think like you say they've got two riders in Maverick and Aleish who are able to win races every weekend obviously Aleish is challenging for the title I agree that Maverick will enter next year as a firm title contender because even in his interviews he's just a different person to what he was at Yamaha he's obviously won races at Yamaha he's just a completely reformed character so yeah really really exciting times for Aprilia
2: Yeah, good stuff. Look forward to Aragon. Absolutely.
1: absolutely. Um, I think finally, just before we kind of let you go, we've picked your brains enough. I think um, we've got so many exciting lineups next year. You know, you've got Peko and Anea in the same team at Ducati. I don't think I've ever seen uh, a factory lineup with so much unproven potential as that. Um, And then, you know, Johan Mir and Mark Marquez at factory Honda next year. And even... Lineups like Alex Rins going to LCR, and then probably it will be either Taka or Ayagura joining him. Uh, which lineup next year has you most interested?
2: Yeah, good question. I mean, that as far as Rins on a Honda is going to be super interesting, and also with Mir as Mark's teammate, so that 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 lineup is going to create a lot of coverage, I think. As far as performance is concerned I still think the Aprilia with Maverick and Valage and the new Aprilia team with with Miguel and Raul is is going to be interesting but definitely performing all I see at the moment from Aprilia is we're always getting faster so that that's going to be here's a couple of guys that are feeding off each other yeah they're they're going to be they're going to be really interesting I'd like to see Frankie back at his best with yeah because you know, sure. yeah that. yeah because i mean he he was faster in the test which is super positive and don't forget he he won this race in 2020 right so mm-hmm. he's capable um, on a yamaha and um i think that would be a good thing so let's see what happens i mean also ktms could be could be a little bit interesting as well you know you got you got brad and um got jack jack I love Jack. I work with Jack. He's, he's going to be a good character in that team. He's going to fit that. And not that the guys there haven't fit. It's just you know Jack's quite a funny guy. So it could yeah. be it could be fireworks there if things go well. So there's a lot. There's a lot of good stuff to watch. Definitely.
0: Yeah, we've got a good end of season coming, down. we've got a very very exciting. 2023 season coming up, so yeah fully agree with that. Tom, thank you very much, we've taken an hour and five minutes, it's been an absolute pleasure thank you for coming to join us Um, and yeah, hopefully see you around soon, maybe in the paddock, have you got any plans to come to any races between now and the Um, end of the year?
2: No, I I thought about sneaking to Aragon but to be honest, no, I think um, I'm enjoying it from home watching it on telly, I kind of had an inkling maybe to come to Valencia, but I know Valencia is always chaos. So if I come (laughs) to a Grand Prix, yeah, I I will definitely come to a Grand Prix next year. Um, I I haven't been lured back into the pit lane from a work point of view, but, but I I would say no, I'm, I'm interested. Um, So yeah, it's a, it's been good to have a break, and I needed a break. And um, I kind of feel like the batteries are recharged. So, yeah, it, it would be cool to do something again. Um, I don't know what on what level, but you know, mm-hmm. yeah, we'll see. If I see you, if I'm in the pit lane, I'll let you guys know.
1: Yeah, Absolutely. definitely. Say hello to us. You'll see me walking around. Yeah, yeah thanks, thanks for having me on. on. No, 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 our no, okay. pleasure. Thank you.
2: Yeah, my, my pleasure. I, I enjoyed it. So, it's a rainy day in the UK, so no problem sitting no. there chatting about motorbikes. Chatting about motorbikes is probably the part of racing I miss the most, so it's,
0: it's been fun. Thank you. No, no worries at all. Thank you for joining us. Oh, he's gone. <laughs> Just like that. But no, that was a, a fascinating chat, really. Um, yeah, really. Very, well. very, very knowledgeable guy. Great guy as well, isn't he, Tom? So yeah, hope you guys enjoyed that, watching along either live or listening at a bit of a later date. Jack, we're going to press on into what we saw at the San Marino Grand Prix moving away from the test slightly um, yeah, Pecco four wins in a row
2: Yeah, close the gap down um, to uh,
0: Fabio really to 30 points now we were looking back at it weren't we earlier on and um, 91 points it was after he crashed out of second place in Germany when Fabio went on to win, now it's down to 30 first Ducati rider ever to win four races in a row um, yeah. And they made him sweat for it, but Pekka really is, is on a roll, isn't he?
1: Yeah, on a roll, absolutely. Um, I mean, what do you say about Pekka at the minute? He's just unstoppable. And we go to Aragon now as well, where he won last year. And he, OK, of course, Mark wasn't 100% fit last year, wasn't right, wasn't himself. You saw how much pain he was in after the race last year. But he did manage to not crack under the pressure, just like he did last weekend with Pecco, with Anea chasing him all the way down, and you wouldn't bet against him making it five. And if he does, I mean, it's going to be alarm bells for Fabio because, you know, Pecco picked up 14 points over him last time out. And there's every chance that happens again in Aragon. You know, if Fabio isn't able to find something this year with the 22 Yamaha, possibly if he uses the new chassis that he tried in Mazzano there, um, you know, it's going to be game on with five rounds to go after the next time out.
0: Yeah, Aragon, even Fabio said, is going to be tough because, yeah, like, like we've said, Fabio doesn't enjoy Aragon. Yamaha don't really enjoy Aragon either historically. Um, and not only, obviously, Pekka winning there last year, uh, Elation Aprilia do enjoy Aragon, even when Aprilia weren't as fast as they are now. Um, they still enjoyed going to Aragon and getting. Uh, best results I think they got six a couple of times with a leash, even when they weren't at the best and now they've got a package like Tom rightly said probably the most rounded package on the grids although you could argue that Ducati have as well Um, definitely the best two bikes on the grid at the minute though so um, obviously Maverick getting on the podium was another a good ride thought he might he was on for the win but then in the last few laps just slipped away didn't he and we saw Bastianini University's Peko roll out which is uh very exciting of course after yeah, the news I that Enea was joining him in 2023 um but yeah the podium finishes uh all, all good it was a it was a good race to watch and very interesting and like we say Aragon and Aprilia bit of a match made in heaven
1: Yeah, certainly. I mean, it's a bit of a tricky one, because obviously we only really have, uh, for Aprilia anyway, the last three seasons to go off, because they changed the bike completely for 2020. But as you say, Aleish always gone well there. First podium there on that forward Yamaha back in 2014. And then even with the older Aprilia, which was certainly not the bike to be on, he always went well there. So Aleish definitely, you know, one of his favourites, probably, if not his personal favourite of all the tracks. and Maverick, you really got to say that with these three podiums in the last four, I mean, don't forget that Alesh hasn't had a podium in six races now. Um, Maverick is the man on form in the Acrelia Garage. Of course, Alesh is a little bit unlucky because he had that huge crash in Silverstone where he fractured his was it his right heel, left one, I can't remember anyway. But um, that sort of thing. Then now he's broken the finger, which he has said won't be a problem uh, by the time he gets to Aragon next weekend. But still, it's just another thing which is not ideal for him to deal with. Um, And he does need to bounce back. If he wants to win this championship, which of course he does, uh, then he needs to bounce back. And, well, really, he's got to put a victory in because someone needs to stop (laughs) Peko.
0: Yeah, they really do. Um, I think the next, I think Aragon's going to be a massive sign for Alesh as to whether he can take the title fight all the way down to Valencia or not. Um, obviously many things can happen as we saw in Silverstone, he was the quickest rider and then uh yeah. a crash can sort of ruin your weekend. Um and who knows what can happen in the race of course. Race, but really. Well, yeah, exactly. Um so Aragon is gonna be a real a real tester for elation and Prilia. I think I think they are gonna go very well there. Um and I think they'll go well at every track from now on. Elache said yeah. that the Red Bull ring and Mizano two of his worst tracks on the calendar and he's come away with two sixth place finishes, which okay, on paper when you're chasing, the title isn't what you want, but also Fabio didn't really pick up where well, he got second in the Red Bull Ring horse, but didn't go well at Silverstone, obviously crashed out at Aston. Um didn't have the best of races last time out at San Marino GP so it's really really intriguing, 32 points split in the top three, but obviously Peko is now... Um, Chasing closest to Fabio, not Alege.
1: Yeah, he is. Uh, I mean, it's it's interesting, isn't it, as well? Because Fabio obviously outlined that Peko was his you know, his main rival that he was concerned about. And you're sitting there uh, as Aleix Sparger, and you're going, hang on a minute, I'm still pretty, yeah. pretty good. <laughs> you know, like, calm down. Um, so there's certainly an element of that where Aleix going to be keen, obviously, to prove to Fabio he's still in this. Like Those two get on great. So he, he knows that it wasn't anything... Uh, of a malice, malicious comment towards towards Elation. Uh, his chances are anything, but still, it's gonna. You know, Elation will have heard that one, and he'll be determined to prove it wrong. Um, away from the top three, though, we of course have to highlight Luca Marini. Uh, hmm. Two back to back eight floors now. Like what a job Luca is doing, and really. Uh, you know, from my own personal opinion, he's, he's surprising me, I have to say. I don't know if he's surprising everyone, because of course, Luca is an incredible rider anyway. But he is a big fella. In MotoGP, we've seen big fellas struggle a little bit uh, on on the premier class machines. Uh, but now he's proven as wrong that, you know, all the tall guys can actually do it as well in modern MotoGP. Yeah,
0: he's, he's been impressive, hasn't he? Um, I mean, the fourth place in the Red Bull ring was sort of. He had a quiet race, didn't he? And then just sort of. Picked his way through the, the top ten, sort of, and then finished fourth. And obviously, we were focusing on Fabio chasing down the uh, the podium finishes, weren't we? And obviously, Peco getting a gap out front. Um, but then, obviously, in Mazzano, he was in the lead yeah, group. There was yeah, on. there was yeah, Peco and Maverick and Luca, and then Maverick and Luca just sort of dropped off in the the latter half of the race. But he was he was right there with them, and I think it was Simon Crawford who has said before that Luca's like a very methodical rider. He's not one of these guys to just immediately jump on the bike and be immediately really, really fast. He takes his time, yeah. learns the bike, understands the bike, and now we're seeing the fruits of his labour. He's yeah, he's doing a, a really sterling job and going about it quietly as well. Like Obviously, we spoke about him a lot because it was the home GP for Mooney VR46 and all the Italian guys. Um, the two fourth places in a row, that podium doesn't seem to be far off. You went back against him being up there again in Aragon, either, because that's going to really suit the Ducatis as well.
1: Yeah, it should suit the Ducatis. Um, so certainly they're going to be up there, uh, Marini and particularly Bezecchi as well, who's obviously going well at the minute. Probably would have been on for a, I reckon, a, a good top six result. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Last weekend, if you had to top the front, down at which which corner was it? Just before coming up to the back straight, wasn't it? 10-10, um, yeah, yeah. So certainly, like, they're all doing well. I mean, Bastianini's suddenly found the confidence again after his little mid-season lull where he was struggling with the front end, um, back on it. And that's going to be so exciting to see Bassi you know, kind of develop in these last few <laughs> races and then hit 2023 full on. But of course, you know, Pecco's not going to be worried about Bassi but there is the chance, you know, he was 34,000th of a second behind him at the flag on Sunday. There's very much a chance that he could be thousandths ahead of him at the flag on Sunday in Aragon. So, you know, it it could be some points that go the way of Bassinini and not the way of Peko, of course, is, you know, Ducati's main man to go for this championship and the closest rival to to Fabio now. So there'll, there'll be some worry there, but as both of them have said, you know, team orders of the minute don't come into it. Peko's very fair, you know, wants everyone to have their own fair chance and to go for it and do what they want to do. Um, so yeah, it's going to be good to see those guys battling throughout the rest of the rest of the races.
0: Yeah, it was interesting on a video we posted on MotoGP uh, Obviously speaking to Pecco and and Davide Tardozzi, team manager of the the Factory Ducati team, about team orders. And Pecco was saying, "Look, I don't I don't want team orders yet. I want to win races on merit. I don't want potentially faster Ducati riders to move out of the way just because." I can win. I want to win on my merit, and then of course, come yeah. maybe the last two, three races. Certainly, the last race in Valencia, if it comes down to that, which we we hope it does. Then there'll obviously be team orders. Say if Bastianini or Marini or Jack Miller is ahead, and Pekka needs some points, then that's when it will come into it, which will be obviously interesting. Um, but yeah, at the minute, no, no team orders. But he, like you say, it's going to be interesting because. If Anae would have beaten Peko, I'd be interested to see what the reaction was uh, to team orders. Whereas if it obviously didn't happen like that, so obviously Tardarzi and Peko are going to naturally be like, yeah, we don't need team orders yet. All is good. But if it would have been the other way around, it would have been interesting to see the reaction. Yeah,
1: Yeah, it definitely would have been. Um, It's going to be very interesting either way, whichever way it plays out, uh, whether they do team orders or not. I don't think they will, to be honest, until they absolutely no. have to but by the time it gets to that point where they absolutely have to and in the final round uh, you know it's likely that the other Ducati riders will be out of the championship mathematically so they'll know of themselves not to to get in the way and and meddle with the, the championship um speaking of going to aragon of course we just had mizano test where mark did finally return um, <laughs> there's all this wonder about whether he's going to be at uh, aragon we obviously don't know yet he said that Did he say he would make a decision by Saturday or Sunday this week? Was that
0: when he said Yeah, it was around then. He was basically saying, obviously, he got asked the questions both days, which is obviously normal because that's (laughs) what everyone wants to know. Um, And he basically said, we can't make a decision yet. We're going to need to see how the muscles heal. He's obviously going to be very, very tired, very achy. But yeah, I I think by this weekend, you're right. A decision will be made. And obviously early next week or even over the weekend we'll probably find out what's happening so i think to be honest he will be there tom said he won't be so i can probably trust <laughs> him more than trust my own opinion because obviously he's <laughs> he's worked in the paddock he's been a crew chief and knows a lot more than i do but i just think he had a successful return i think i know you agree as well that i just think he'll be there just to even just to test a few things for honda they're not in the title I say he, say he won't win the race, but this is Mark Marquez and it's Aragon. So he, he could well win the race if he goes. Yeah, I, I think he'll be there personally, but I could be wrong.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, besides Jack Miller put, I think it was uh, the second Bazzano race or whichever one he won last year. And Jack Miller said, oh, he's got one arm and he still smoked us. Yeah. Um, so, you know, yeah, it's very relatable to Mark and Aragon that, you know, if you turn up with Mark Marquez to Aragon. On even a half decent bike, he's gonna he's gonna go pretty well and probably plant it in the top six fairly easily. Um, yeah, but yeah, it, it's interesting because obviously the big thing with 2020 was you know there's obviously the debates about whether he came back too early and all this. Um, Honda will know that they do not need to rush this. The only thing that is there for them to gain is purely to have him on the bike to learn and to test things. So. There's another theory that a few of the colleagues in the office have floated around that maybe he turns up for Aragon if he does, you know, thinks that he's okay to do it. And he decides to tell us all that, yes, I will be in Aragon. Maybe he turns up for there and then skips the flyaways and comes back for Valencia at the end of the year. But um, either way, more bike time is good for Honda. They just need to decide if it's good for Mark as well.
0: Yeah, that's that's the big thing, isn't it? And the one thing I took away from the interview I did with him before he came back was they're going to take the time; they're not going to rush anything. Obviously, he's done the test now and it was successful. But yeah, the the last thing they need is to rush him back and for it to go wrong. But I don't I don't think it I don't think it will. The bone seems to be well. Mark said it's hundred percent fixed. It's now just trying to build that fitness up, get some strength yeah. back. Um. He said in uh, Austria, didn't he, when he did that press conference, he was in the paddock. He said riding the bike is the last fitness test, the last sort of thing you need to do to get fully fit, because you can't be fully fit to ride a MotoGP bike without riding a MotoGP bike. So, yeah, it's going to be a big, big talking point, isn't it, ahead of Aragon. And if he is there, then I'm going to be very, very excited to see what he can do.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's going to be very entertaining. Um, I don't know if there's too much more you want to talk about, Elliot, but uh, possibly we should I think... just mention... Go on.
0: Go on. No, you go.
1: Well, i so say maybe possibly <laughs> we just mention again uh, just about Fabio and the, the engine gains and stuff like this for, for next season, yeah. of course. It's an interesting topic because Mayo Marigali in his interview uh, with us yesterday at the end of the test said that the lap time was starting to come easier for both of them. Uh, he didn't necessarily indicate whether that was specifically because of the engine or the chassis uh, that they tried, but, I mean, it, it's largely probably going to be the engine because they won't have to work so hard to get out of the corner as quick. But if it is that chassis and if Fabio is planning to use it in Aragon, it does, you know, it's a final kind of throw of the dice in Yamaha's trick book for, for 2022. Um, and if it just gives him that percentage of... You know, performance that he needs, then all of a sudden, it's you know the momentum that Peko has at the minute could just come to a, a very abrupt stop.
0: Yeah, absolutely. One thing I we should mention as well, we've had a few bits of news since we were last on some twenty twenty three announcements. We've pretty much got the grid decided. We had Marco Bezzecchi confirmed today as well. We it's unofficially official that Luca Marini will be joining in there next year, of course, in Mooney 46 But we've had Joao Mir to Repsol Honda confirmed, which is very, very exciting. exciting. We've already mentioned, of course, Miguel Overa and Raul Fernandez joining RNF and f Aprilia. And then looks like... Again, not confirmed and we're not confirming anything either. Um but it looks like <laughs> the report suggests that Augusto Fernandez is going to join Paula Sparga at Gas Gas Factory Racing in twenty twenty three. So exciting stuff all round. We mentioned it a bit earlier, didn't we, how exciting the uh twenty twenty three lineup is. But yeah, I think Joan Mir to Reps Honda to partner Mark Marquez, hopefully a fully fit Mark Marquez next year as well. That's uh that's juicy, isn't it?
1: It is juicy. I think as well it's particularly juicy because obviously we've seen kind of like the dream team lineups at Honda uh, in the past when Mark's been there. Obviously the initial one was Mark and Danny. Then you had Mark and Lorenzo there in 2019 but Lorenzo came into that not 100% fit and struggled with a bike and ultimately it was yeah. where he decided to stop his career. But um, I think Joanne is one of the few that will not be intimidated at all by being Mark's teammate. It's kind of that same thing of being Valentino's teammate back in his peak of his powers through like the early and mid-2000s. No one wanted to do it because uh, it was one thing. It was like, you know, Valentino and that team, that was Valentino's. It wasn't Yamaha. Yeah. It was kind of like Valentino's team. Um, so it was why, yeah, kind of had like, you know, Colin Edwards in there as the perfect kind of partner to to be Valentino's teammate. But now Honda brought in Joan Mir world champion a very very promising rider just not quite had the bike to show his skills properly in the last couple of seasons uh and i don't think he's intimidated at all i think he'll stare him in the face and neither of them will blink
0: yeah fully agree i mean it's a very very tough ask i know suzuki pulled out obviously didn't they at the end so their hand was forced sort of but i totally agree joan is not going to be intimidated by mark at all and two world champions two of the fastest riders on the grid one of them obviously being an eight-time world champion and arguably the greatest full-time so it is going to be very interesting i think we've um, broken the record for longest podcast of the year i've just noticed <laughs> we been going for an hour and a half but it's been it's been a very good hour and a half tom was a great guest hopefully everyone watching along and listening at a later date has enjoyed it have you enjoyed it jack it's been good to have you on mate
1: yeah, very good. I uh, of course enjoy coming on the podcast. Enjoy talking about all the tech sort of stuff. I'll do a shameless yeah. little plug there to my little baby, the Mergp Tech Group. Make sure <laughs> I was do you it go in you there if you weren't. So, ah, fantastic! I'll do it myself. It's all right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just one hundred and fifty k people in there. So make sure you go and join the Mergp Tech Group on Facebook. Uh, all sorts of analysis going in there over the coming days from the designer test, and already a few bits and pieces in there for you to peruse at your leisure. So yeah, go and have a look.